Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thanks, David. <laughs> My name is Kent, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here, as I typically always say, and as I typically always do. Let's pray before we jump into this. Father God, Lord, um, I think what maybe stirs in my heart most of all about just all these Beatitudes, but particularly this last Beatitude, is that you are in no uncertain terms declaring what is most true about your kingdom. (laughs) Man, I don't know if I can make that claim what's most true, but man, all truth, I guess, is most true, and this is a truth. It's that you are worth going all in for. You are worth losing everything that we think holds our lives together. Because ultimately, you are offering not a consolation prize, but the actual prize that our souls are longing for. And Lord, that reality can't be fostered artificially in someone's heart. It has to be brought alive by your spirit. And so, Lord, that's what we ask you this morning, is to allow your spirit to preach that truth to someone for the first time and to rekindle that truth for many, for however many times. Lord, rekindle that truth in my heart. Lord, allow me to continue to see all the good things you have as just that, good things, but not ultimate. And Lord, there's nothing that we truly lose because you are the one who holds all of reality in your hands, holds all good things in your hands. And you very clearly said, we will not lose on this deal. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts, eyes, ears to see, hear, feel that. I pray that this morning in your son's name. Amen. Well, we are moving through the Sermon on the Mount, and I don't know if this will be good news or bad news or whatever news for some of you, but we are concluding the Beatitudes this morning. We are concluding Jesus' introduction, to which we have taken eight weeks to go through. And with it, we come to the last Beatitude, which marks an interesting shift you might see in the words and in the way that it's presented, but... Let me set it up by this, by just making this clear statement, um, and one that I think a lot of you will resonate with. I am a grade A, borderline professional, if someone doesn't pay me, but they could pay me, people. I long for people to approve of me and to think well of me. I think I've said it like this. I really, on some level, want people to envy me in my wicked heart. And it's partially the way that I prepare sermons the way I do, which if anyone gets the joy of talking to my wife about how I prepare sermons, she'll be very honoring and loving to me. But she'll probably be also thinking about the way that I can like go into this dark cocoon come Friday and Saturday almost every week. And part of it is, I believe, maybe a righteous desire that I'm like, man, I want this truth to be brought to people's hearts and lives in a fresh way, and I don't want it to be missed and overheard. But I know that a large majority of it, uh, majority of it is a wicked desire of I want to kill it, and I want people to recognize that I've done that. And I recognize that's wicked. I repent of it regularly. I also do this thing. This is just, I thought of this this week. This is such a way that I, well, let me just describe it. Maybe this is you too. I replay interactions with people in my head of like what I just said, how it came off, particularly if it was a good uh, interaction. I just want to relive, oh, that was funny. And I said this and it was clever and that was the right thing to say. And they were moved. And I 
find myself replaying them in such vividness in my mind that often my wife will look at me and say, what are you talking about and who are you talking to? And I'll have to come up from that moment and say, oh, I was just thinking about this moment and uh, forgot that the rest of the world existed because I want to live in that video of that moment. And I don't think I'm alone in this room. I don't know what it is about our culture that just produces people-pleasing hearts right now. We, uh, so there's all different kinds of cultures that if you boil all culture down, there's kind of like a root question every culture is asking. And I don't know however many years ago, but America was used to be seen as a guilt and uh, innocence culture. The main question we were answering, uh, trying to answer is, am I guilty or am I innocent? As opposed to like an Eastern honor shame culture. They don't care if I'm guilty or innocent. They care if it's bringing me honor or it's bringing me shame. Now, I've heard argued, and I would also agree, that I think social media is quickly turning us to an honor-shame culture. But in this moment, we'd have to still say on some level we're a guilt-shame culture. But I, I, again, I, I don't even recognize that in my own heart because at the end of the day, I will perpetrate even an act of injustice if I believe it will get people to approve of me, I think, on some level. Now, there's certain lines I won't cross because of the law, I suppose. But if I really let the wickedness of my heart go... I want approval that much. And that's probably what makes the last beatitude potentially the least palatable of them all. I mean, up to this point, we've been going through these eight statements that Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount with, and we've been saying, hey, these are ways that Jesus has come and said, hey, these are who are actually blessed. And in saying that, he's not saying, hey, these are the people who they do this and they get this because God looks down and says, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. High five, here's your inherited earth or here is your uh, satisfaction. He's rather saying, no, like these are the people that are living in such a way that they're congruent with the way that God, my father, that that God, myself, when he created the uh, world through me, through me as the living word, he made it this way and they're simply, simply flourishing even though to the outside eye, to the eye of our culture, they don't look like they're flourishing at all. But I'm telling you, when this kingdom comes, and I'm telling you my kingdom is here now, and as it comes, you will increasingly see that it's not the rich in spirit that are flourishing, it's the poor in spirit. It's not those who are rejoicing all the time, it's those that have the capacity to know there's brokenness in this world and they're mourning right now. It's those who are going to meekly wait on God to give them the earth. It is those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for they will be satisfied, for the merciful, for the pure in heart, for the peacemakers, and for those who are opposed, for those who are disliked, for those who are reviled for righteousness and for Jesus' name's sake. So in that... There's so much of me that's like, man, I, I, I can take the others. I can take the poor in heart because, I, you know, we unearth that to kind of like show what that means. This means it's, I just don't believe that I have it all going on. I believe that I need God's righteousness on my own account, that I can't earn it on myself. And, and we can go through all of those. We can go through mourning, which is like mourning is like maybe the least popular one. But to a certain level, it's like I've seen inside out. I know that it takes sadness to experience true happiness. You know, Pixar taught me that. And so now I know that that's just emotional health. And so I can go through all these beatitudes and be like, okay, on some level, I can kind of even want that. But then it gets to, hey, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness. And then I just want to say, like, man, I was really hoping to go seven or all eight for eight and get, like, the perfect bingo card of blessedness or, like, collect them all like it's some live version of Pokemon Go, Jesus. But I'm just afraid. I, I, I don't know if I want that one. Because what I want, what I want is to live in such a way that I am righteous and all people speak well of me. And I die surrounded by family and friends and then they have a national day of mourning in which they pack out my funeral where people trip over themselves to eulogize about how righteous and funny and just all around amazing guy that I was. But Jesus says, no, if you are going to live in my kingdom, if you are going to take on my righteousness, if you are going to look around the world and beg for it to be made the way it should be. If you're going to look at the way I've designed that world and start appropriating your life through the power of my spirit, you will be opposed. Book it. Buy the ticket. It's happening. 
you will be opposed. You will be resisted. You will be reviled. You will be, on some level, big or small, persecuted. And you might want to say, like, okay, but it says maybe I just won't be one of those people. I mean, very clearly it says, blessed are those. But then he goes on in verse 11. He said, no, hey, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely in my account. And you could still get semantic on it. He's like, well, maybe he's not saying, hey, when is like this, not if, but when. Maybe he's saying, like, hey, if and when that happens, this is how you should think about it. But then you could even take, and I, bought, I put this up on a slide just because I feel like we need to see these words. 2 Timothy 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, when Timothy is speaking to, or uh, Paul is speaking in his, this is basically like his death treatise, as he's just like saying, hey, here's my last will and testament. Timothy, here's what I want you to remember before I go. And he says to him, hey, Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so, Christian in the room who wants to be liked by everyone, can I lay out some really bad news for you this morning? It's simply this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But I'm not trying to monger fear here, and I'm also not trying to create some victim mentality in the room today. I'm going to get back to that in a moment. I'm simply trying to God's word to you this morning, and it happens to be a guarantee that persecution will come. And that brings up a lot of questions of like, well, am I not, pers- am I not experiencing persecution? Am I not really blessed? Am I like, or it, it just when does that happen, and what does that look like, and how do I endure, and, and why do I have to have it, and why do you have to have it as a Christian? And, and I want to get to some of those, but let's just start first by just looking at the fact that this is a beatitude a statement of who is actually flourishing. And Jesus says, hey, do you want to know who actually is flourishing? It's not when everyone speaks well of your name. That you are actually blessed when others revile you. You are actually blessed when others speak ill of you for righteousness, for my name's sake. That that is what it looks like to actually experience all of the deep joys that God has for you. And, and this is what's crazy, is Jesus is like saying, hey, my kingdom is characterized by those who will be opposed when they're in it. But that's not actually an obstacle to the goodness that people will experience. It actually becomes a vehicle for it. That's a really big statement, but we've got to work our way back up to it. So let me just set a couple things up to do. Uh, get there. And when I do that, I'm just going to simply look at a few things in this passage. I want to look at what does this resistance look like? Why will we experience it as Christians? Who are Christians in the room today? I know that uh, some of you here are not Christians. Glad that you're here. And then how do we endure well? Or if you want those in alliteration, I know some of you are like, this is your obligatory trip to church in 2018, so I want to satisfy. They can look at these alliterative like this. We're going to look at the resistance itself. We're going to look at the righteousness that gives rise to the resistance and the reward that endures the resistance. And so to look at the resistance itself, looking just again at verse 10 where it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now before we go any further, let's recognize a very relevant sermon that is not going to be the main topic of what we're dealing with today. Rather, it's just going to be a footnote today. But in some places of the world, in fact, I would say even most places of the world, this would be the sermon I would have preached today. Is that there are, in a majority of Christians' lives in the world today, a very real persecution, and it is absolutely physical in nature. That we shouldn't get so disconnected from our brothers and sisters around the world that we aren't regularly remembering that there are places in Asia that people are gathering together on the Lord's day and in a basement with curtains drawn, with someone checking every single person who comes in. And when they gather everyone together, they begin singing an extremely passionate, hushed, whispered tone and having their hearts drop into their gut every single time there's a knock on the door. 
And in other contexts in this room, I mean, we even support through this church missionaries and uh, missionaries in places of the globe that have said, "Hey, I, I, I'm ministering to this person, but the fact is, if they are going to become a Christian." They are going to have to be disowned by their family, which is their only way of making money in this world, so that if they are to make this decision and the church does not become the church to them, like does not walk alongside them, house them, give them an economic engine, support them for a season while they try to find another means of supporting themselves, they will be forced to beg and possibly starve. That that's what bearing one another's burdens looks like in certain places. And so we need to remember as American Christians that sometimes bringing the gospel to every corner of the globe is not just a transaction of information. Hey, Jesus has come that you can't be righteous on your own, but now through Jesus' righteousness, you can be a son or daughter of the Most High King. Yeah, and you might have to give up absolutely everything that you hold dear for it. I, I mean... They hear that when Jesus says, hey, give up everything and follow me, that's not some sort of metaphorical, philosophical gain to them. That could sound very literal. And in that, what's crazy too is that churches in areas like uh, those are exploding right now. And there's part of me that I mean, I just want to believe that, of course, it's the magic spirit of God, and absolutely it is. And I think also the reality of it, too, is when Jesus said, hey, I am something that is so worthy that I'm worth giving everything for, I'm worth going all in on, he meant it. And people who actually are forced to make that decision, though it might be tears in their eyes and a struggle to release the gift, they somewhat are coming in droves to agree. It's not everybody in their country. Believe me, if it was a majority, that'd probably make it a lot easier. But more and more people are saying, no, I will give everything. Why? Because he is king. He is Lord. He is the one ushering in the kingdom that cannot be taken from me. And I'm willing to risk everything, give everything, if that's what it means. And I think that's just helpful to remember in a in a context where if we're not careful, we can start to see Jesus as like a feature to be added into a new car. Like, man, I got to have the heated seats. A remote start would be nice. DVD for those long trips with the kids. And oh yeah, why not toss Jesus on too? Now we'll have the Platinum XL Jesus edition. It will all be cool. And hey, if 10% better Jesus doesn't work out, I still got the heated seats, which let's be real. For the last three weeks in the city, I would have given up to two of my kids for heated seats in my car. <sighs> but regardless, we can start to look at this idea as like Jesus is an upgrade. Jesus is not an upgrade. He's an upheaval. He comes and says, I am the king and the Lord and worth going all in on whatever that means and people again and parts where they've actually had to make that choice have said, absolutely. And he's given the same choice to us. Yes, we don't have the same political ramifications. We don't have the same social economic ramifications all the time. But he's making that choice to us. He's saying, hey, I'm worth everything. Which is why sometimes we have to willingly lay down our idols. Which I argue might be harder. But even so... That might inform your prayers for the global church today, but you might say, hey, that's just not my reality. And you're right to say that because it's not. And, and I want to emphasize that because I get really nervous when Christians in America today start claiming persecuted minority status. I just think we've got to be really careful with that. I, I mean, we still, as an organization, Soma Church, 501c3, has tax-exempt status. And I know there's all sorts of blogs out there of like, this is why churches should not have tax-exempt status. And maybe someday that will be the norm. But regardless, right now, it very much so is. And that is favor that we experience because of who we are. 
And yes, you say like, oh, but we can't like, you know, talk about Jesus in this public scenario, or we can't pray in this scenario, or, or this offensive law exists, or, or these people just roll your eyes at this. And, and yes, while that all might be true, I, I, I mean, we can like be like, oh man, like isn't this supposed to be a Christian nation? No, this is meant to be a, a nation that is free to practice the religion of your own choosing. I mean, that's what Christian men and women came over from Europe to found, is they said, hey, we are being persecuted. We're saying, you must do this. You must believe this. You must think this. And we're coming to a place, and we are creating laws where you are free to worship the God that has been put in front of you, that that you say, hey, I believe this is most true about the world. Now, does that mean that we don't live in a place where we want to present God, that we believe that this is the most true reality about the world? Absolutely, but we do not want to create a world where people have to worship the God that is of the Bible. Because frankly, that is exactly what Christians were trying to run from, but yet somehow what some Christians are trying to now reinstitute now that they have the power. And I would just warn you, any law, any stipulation, anything that you make while you are in power, if and when you do lose that power, that will be used against you. So it would behoove us as Christians to regularly, yes, praise God that we are free to worship Jesus in this culture and also praise that we continue to fight for a system that allows that freedom to exist even for people who don't want to exercise it to worship Jesus. And so, in that, we just don't want to walk around, I think, with this sense of, like, we are marginalized. In fact, I I found this quote, and I think this is interesting. I think it's good. He says this, We walk around with chips on our shoulders. We We act as if the vast conspiracy is brewing in America over the Christian faith with naysayers organized and arrayed against us. We feel like we live life on the cultural margins, so we take that as our identity. We count our marginalization as our righteousness. When you justify your existence with the fact that you belong to an oppressed minority in an increasingly secularized culture, you will be persecuted, and that will only sink you more firmly into your identity as a victim. But this is not blessed persecution. It is unnecessary, silly, foolish punishment that you only brought on by yourself by defining your uh, identity as your own victimhood righteousness. He's saying, hey, you might suffer in some way for taking on that mentality, but it's not a blessed righteousness. It's not a persecution because of righteousness. It's a persecution for a self-fulfilling prophecy of claiming victimhood. That's a stiff rebuke, I think, on on some people on some level, and, and I hope you take that with love. I think that's even for myself with a lot of love this morning. But it's not our reality. But that's not to say that there is not a persecution that is very subtle, but is very much so real. In verse 11, I think Jesus actually gets at this. He says, hey, blessed are the pe- uh, uh, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he clarifies further, hey, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He's saying that to come into my kingdom, sometimes it will be big, massive, a physical persecution. And sometimes it will be of the type where people speak ill of you, where people don't like you, where people make it difficult for you to function in your house, with your roommates, in your family, at your job. And that is a persecution that Jesus says, hey, blessed are you for receiving. That there will be times, and there are people I know that have said, hey, if I take Jesus on, it means that I now suddenly have nothing in common with my entire friend group. And they go back to their friends, and it comes the situation of like, oh, man, here's Craig, who used to go out and have fun with us, but then he got Jesus and now thinks he's better than us. Oh, here's, here's Tina, who now, all of a sudden, she's like all mightier and more righteous than. And maybe they're being that way, and maybe you're not. Maybe they're simply feeling the effects of the fact where you're like, no, I have somebody who I'm now calling the Lord of my life that they don't share, and they don't like that. You might have had family members. Or man, you go back to the holidays now, and it's plain awkward because they, it's not that just like they're kind of weirded out that you like Jesus, they're actually against it. That they are actually actively trying to 
do anything they can to persuade you to think differently. Or you might find yourself in a workplace where everyone is, needs to be on team and needs to be, on, uh, you know, needs to be behind the person who's making that decision. And on some level, you know that decision did not align with somebody hungering and for righteousness. And so now you have that moment, you have that choice, you have that fork in the road of do I rock the boat and maybe lose my job or at least lose the promotion, lose favor, or get everyone to roll their eyes when they look my way? Or do I go with the current? And Jesus says, hey, this will be your reality. Sometimes. And when I say sometimes, I mean it like this. That there are times that for you being a Christian and for you looking to appropriate righteousness, looking to appropriate the way that God has designed this world and live in according to it, that you will actually bring favor to yourself by those who do not believe. In fact, you can see this even in Matthew. I mean, you can even look down a couple verses later where it says, hey, verse 14, chapter 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people hide a light, uh, uh, light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand, it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And you get Acts 2. Acts 2 is that classic picture of all the believers. I mean, that's what everyone talks about, how the church should be together. I mean, everyone's coming together and selling their possessions and caring for people, and, and there's no needy among them. And then it even says, and all of the people revered them, that they had honor and glory with all the people. That there should be times where, man, because of you desiring goodness in the world, because of the goodness in our hearts, because of the desire for righteousness in all our hearts that is designed in us, people should say that and say, amen, that's why we need that person. That's why we need this church. That's why we need that organization in this city. There should be people mourning the day should we have to close our doors here at Soma in this neighborhood that say, man, think what you think about what they believed. They did a lot of good in this neighborhood. And so there should be times where that is your reality. However, you can fast forward from Acts 2 to Acts 8. And it's the same church in the same city, except now they're experiencing such intense persecution after the first martyr, Stephen, is killed. That says people have to leave and flee the city to not experience it. They're having to leave their jobs, leave their homes. Some people maybe even leave their families behind because the persecution was so intense. And that's the same group of people amongst the same group of people. You will experience pushback, opposition, resistance. It won't be all the time. It shouldn't be all the time. In fact, if you do experience resistance and persecution all the time, you should ask yourself, am I actually suffering for righteousness sake? Because that's the kind of, of resistance that is going to be blessed, is those who suffer for righteousness sake, for Jesus' sake. And you can suffer, again, for what we've already mentioned, a lot of things that are not righteousness sake. You, you can be the person who is just overly judgmental towards your friends and family. I've talked about before, there's like a terminology that I've heard in the American church that I think is a really helpful one called the cage phase. It's basically this idea that when you first become a Christian, sometimes you just need to put that person in a cage for them to like get out all their self-righteous energy. And then after about six months, release them back into society to now be an effective witness for Jesus. And I totally have sympathy the cage phaser because I so was the cage phaser. I mean, I am still trying to mend some bridges I burned amongst my family members because I was in a cage phase of you need to obey, you need to believe and obey and bow your knee right now. And I don't care what the spirit is doing or how he's working it out in his timing. You need to know this. And you also need to say you're sorry to me for when you did this to me, because Jesus says that's not nice. And so you can be in the cage phase, or you can just be like, man, I'm just that person who just tells it like it is. Man, I'm just a good truth person. Hey, they needed to hear truth. 
Well, maybe they needed to hear truth couched in love. Or maybe because you couldn't be loving to them, you weren't the person to say truth to them. And so you need to ask yourself, hey, if I'm experiencing persecution all the time, maybe it's not because I'm a Christian. Maybe it's because I'm a jerk. And if I'm never experiencing persecution, if that's never my reality, maybe it's not because I'm so Christ-like. Maybe it's because I'm a coward. And so with that caveat in mind, let's just explore the reason that gives rise to the resistance Jesus is talking about. Verse 10, when he says, hey, you will be persecuted for righteousness sake. We've already talked about in the layout of the Beatitudes. When it talks in the fourth beatitude about, hey, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's then bookending it with this moment, saying, hey, those who are persecuted for righteousness. And even kind of defines righteousness a little bit, like, hey, you can define righteousness by what you find in the sandwich of, the lo- of those two pieces of bread. So after uh, being uh, hungry and thirsting for righteous, uh, righteousness, we see blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, and the peacemakers. So if you want just a quick, off-the-cuff definition of righteousness, it's those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, and those who are peacemakers. Now, there's more to it than that, but it's certainly not less than that. And so you can take those things and say, okay, those are what it looks like to suffer for righteousness' sake. But it doesn't make sense on some level. I mean, we are suffering and being persecuted for being peacemakers. We're making peace with those who are apparently responding to that peace with war. But you have to look at 11 because it's a subtle shift, but it's an important one. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's interesting how Matthew so quickly and interchangeably uses suffer for righteousness and suffer for Jesus' account. And I think there's a lot of things that, that those two terms kind of being interchangeable in Matthew's thinking could allude to. Just one or two of them quickly is that you can only actually be righteousness, uh, righteous when you're connected to Jesus. And I know like, that's kind of like, man, that's crazy because there's a lot of really nice people out there. Absolutely, a lot of really nice people out there. But, but the Bible is going to say, hey, when you are not connected to me, that even your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. I mean, even the stuff you do that you think, hey, this will gain me favor with God, you throw that in my throne room and I say, get that out, it's filth. And you have to recognize that some level that you experience that is true. Because outside of the gospel, all that I do on some level, yes, there is a natural beauty design in me that says, hey, this is what justice and mercy is. And there's something in me that is capable of walking towards that without Jesus. But on some level, there's always a part of me that says, this gets me favor with God, or this gets me favor with people, or this makes me feel better about myself. Only when you come to a God who says, hey, everything you do is completely worthless without me. But with me, you have full righteousness. Nothing you do adds to it. Now you are free to stand before as a beloved son or daughter of God, not because of what you have done, but because what my son has done on your behalf. And now in that freedom, you are now free to walk forward in good deeds. Now not doing it and be like, well, now God likes me more. Now doing it says God loves me as much as he possibly ever could. And now I have the opportunity to now bless others through that. And so in some level he's saying, hey, righteousness and Jesus' sake are true because being righteous is being intimately connected to Jesus. But then he's also making the point that when you begin to produce righteousness, you begin to look like Jesus. And people who are in the kingdom of this world, and this is true of you too, before you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian, hate Jesus. You're like, what are you talking about? Like, everybody loves Jesus. I mean, even on some level, if you're like, I don't like Christians, but I like Jesus. I mean, he had a lot of good things to say. That's because you're making a version of Jesus that's more palatable to you. If you take the actual Jesus for who he is, he is amazingly compelling and amazingly offensive. Because he all in the same breath will heal the sick, will come forward and and be 
gentle to the least of these, but then he will look in the eyes of those who feel like they have anything worthy to bring and say, hey, you're bankrupt without me. That all of this, you trying to make up these rules, scribes and Pharisees, so that you can feel good about yourselves, that you are missing the whole idea that this is all about coming to love God and love people. And yes, you will start conforming your life to some of the ways that I have designed it to be. But you will not gain righteousness by being a good person. And you can do that as a moral religious person, or you can do that as a secular person. I've seen both. That I am good because I do these things, and this is my resume. And Jesus is going to say, forget your resume. It's filthy rags. And beyond that, I mean, you have to actually then become a person who says that to people. I mean, the gospel, good news, we always say, must only be accepted with the bad news that it implicates. Here's the bad news. You are a wretch. You have nothing good in you. You deserve death. The God of the universe who is perfect and righteous is an enemy of yours, and you deserve that. But he also loves you so much. You are so loved. You are so brought in that he has said, hey, I will take on your punishment. The king will die for the rebellious subjects so that they might come, be marked by the king's righteousness, and therefore have right standing with God and be eternally in his family. I mean, I think the classic... Twitter version of Tim Keller profaming the gospel is saying, hey, you are so bad that God had to die for you, yet you are so loved that God willingly, lovingly, joyfully died for you. And that will create enemies going and proclaiming that. I mean, we say here all the time, if you serve on hospitality team, a lot of the ways we tell you to like even think about like coffee and introducing and parking is we want to try to remove every offense from this morning except the gospel. Because we know we're going to preach an extremely beautiful yet offensive message. So if we can try to alleviate your frustration in the parking lot or when you get your coffee or when you sit down, we will do that because we want the only stumbling block to be the one stumbling block that God says everyone must go over. And that is that they desperately need Jesus, no matter how put together you think you are. It will offend. It will It will cause you to be less popular in some circles than you formerly were. But then living righteously righteously also causes condemnation. Just living that way in and of itself. So this is really interesting. I never realized so much more controversial than any political conversation is any parenting conversation. Because I cannot on any level, say anything that I choose to do in an intentional way to parent my children that is having some level of success without every parent in the world who is not practicing that same method feeling condemned if their child is experiencing any level of failure. And I might not be being a jerk about it. Now, I might be being a jerk about it. A lot of parents are jerks about it. I've been a jerk about it. I've been jerks about some of the parenting methods I've had. But I've learned very quickly If people ask me about, hey, man, what are you doing to parent these kids? I quickly be like, why do you want to know? And uh, you know what? Just convince me by like, I'm going to write it down. I'm going to walk away. You read it. And if you want to talk about it later, then we can talk about it later. But I'm never following it up with you about it. So there you go. Because there is just a nature of, man, if you're living in such a way and it's producing such a good result that people intrinsically feel condemned. I've started playing, my family and I, my wife and I have started taking a, a year-end retreat. One day at the end of the year, we just took it a, a, week or so, a week or so ago, where we just plan out our whole year, and it's awesome. It's really been helpful. But I've noticed sometimes as I start talking about that to people, you see people being like, well, this is why that would never work for me, or this is why that would never work in my context, or they start to like really bristle. And it's because on some level they, live, they feel condemned just because they're not doing it. I'm like, hey, I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm just trying to like say, hey, this is really awesome for me. But you've all experienced it on some level. You've said like, hey, this is something that's really awesome. And people have said, like, what are you saying about me then? 
And living righteously will produce the same result. I mean, when you, by the Holy Spirit, have fruit produced inside your heart, and all of a sudden start actually to live righteously in some ways, you will have people that just simply feel condemned by your presence, regardless of if you are being judgmental or not. You'll be called judgmental. You'll be called small-minded. You'll be called backwards and simple and, and on your high horse. And yes, again, maybe you're being that and you need to repent. And maybe you can see part of what they're saying is true and say, hey, I'm sorry for that. And take away, dismiss, diffuse that anger before it really gets going. But sometimes it's going to be merely on the fact that they recognize, hey, there isn't just let's live however we want and however the ends will justify your means. There is a way in which God has designed this world that we recognize as beautiful. But we are far from it. And if you kill the curve on me, then on some level we're at odds. And the reason people can't live the righteous way that we were meant to do, the reason that you as a non-Christian were unable to or are unable to live righteously is because it says that in the Bible, in Ephesians specifically, you are in the kingdom of this world. And that's maybe the biggest reason why it's offensive to be connected to Jesus, because he came at the very beginning to say, hey, real politically minded, I am pushing out the old kingdom of this world. I'm not pushing out this political party. I'm pushing out the entire regime that has been over you. And I am bringing in my kingdom. And you, as you come into it, will be like a rebel amongst the kingdom that is still getting pushed out. Though it has no real power over you, it is still the one that is technically in the office. And so as you are connected to people who have not given up that kingdom... And as that kingdom starts to push on to things like money, and the way that God says, hey, the way you're going to deal with your money is by giving it freely because it's not your security, and you're going to bless others with your money. And yes, you're going to care, and you're going to plan, and you're going to take care of your family, and then you are going to be crazy generous and give away trips you could have received and give away benefits and joys and, and temporary pleasures you could have had and give up the ability to go to every restaurant and pick it apart for this is what was good or bad about it because you're going to give amounts of money to people to give them actual food in this country and in others. And as you do that, people who are doing everything to amass the biggest pile are going to say, crucify him. Or you're going to find people who are seeking comfort or seeking control. I want my life to go this way. I want it to work out this way. This needs to happen. And God comes in and Jesus comes in and says, hey, it's not your agenda. It's mine. I say, get out of here. And for anyone who I see who is living submitted to Christ's agenda, not their own, threatens mine by proximity. Or freedom. Again, it's not just about holding on to your autonomy. You can do whatever you want. But submitting to a king who says, no, you can do as I've designed you, and then you will find true flourishing. Or approval. It's not about everyone liking you. It's about joining the rebel king and being hated by those who don't want his kingdom to push out their own. And at times you'll be mocked or coerced or in some places and in this plot of land, if Jesus does not come back, you will be tortured and killed. And I'm not saying that's coming down the pipeline like that's, man, 2018, watch out. Like, I'm not trying to, like, say, like, this is, like, in our immediate future. I'm just saying that Jesus is saying that all people will be persecuted for my namesake, and history bears witness that places like America are the exception. They're not the rule. That some of the ways that our country has been designed has been in the beauty of the natural ways that God has said, hey, this is how flourishing will work for all people, but just have to believe that give us, I don't know what it will be. I don't know if it's 10. I don't know if it's 100. I don't know if it's a 1,000 years that it won't operate on this plot of ground like it does right now. I don't know if that's for you or for your kids or your kids' kids or if Jesus returns before then, but that's true. And so, really quickly, because we need to be really quick, Let's just look at the idea of this reward that you actually are able to endure this. That's actually a quick point for me, so you're in luck. In verse 12, 
He says this, hey, rejoice and be glad, which by the way is the first command of the entire Sermon on the Mount. We've gotten through the whole introduction. This is the first imperative. Hey, do this. It's a weird one. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Because your reward is great, you endure on some big or small level persecution in his name. That's what led martyrs to kiss the stakes of which they would be burned for they were burned upon them for Christ's name. That's what caused some saints who were martyred to say that God has gifted them with this precious season of persecution. Because on some level, they knew that the Bible is going to say, hey, your reward is great for this. That there is, on some level, a greater eternal reward for experiencing persecution, big or small. How you don't hear that this morning is if you're, not pers- if you're not persecuted right now, you need to seek it so that you can get some more reward for your eternity. That's not what Jesus is trying to say. Jesus sometimes is speaking to one group of people, and the other group of people need the earmuff. And that's where if you're there, this is not like, oh, you need to seek it like some sadomasochistic like Christian. This is not on that level. What it's trying to say to you is, hey, if you are able to flee like they did in Acts 8, yeah, get out. Get free. That's not the way I've designed humans to live. But if you aren't able to flee, if you aren't able to get out, then even the vehicle which brings your pain will be the vehicle that brings your greatest joy and pleasure. God brings great joy out of suffering. And you say, well, that's great for the eternal, but man, how do I, like, what if you're in it in the here and now? And you're like, man, I want to keep my eyes on that, and that helps a little, but man, I really need something to get me through Monday. Let me just say, man, 2017 was like a really hard year for a lot of people I know, including ourselves. Not like a crazy hard year. Like, I mean, there are some things that like it could have gone worse, and I recognize that. But I just know a lot of people personally and and myself that just like really just, I don't know what about 2017 it was. It was just hard. And I was talking with one of those people who like towards the end of the year, they're like, the crazy thing is, is like, this has been a hard year, but I kind of feel like I'm on the upswing. I kind of feel like I'm coming out of the anxiety that I was experiencing. And I was kind of like agreeing with them. Like, man, I kind of feel like I am too. I don't know what it was, but I feel like something, a cloud's kind of lifting in some ways. And they said, yeah, I'm really scared. Because when I was in my darkest moment of suffering, there was no, I need to read my Bible today. There was no, I need to press into prayer today. It felt like daily bread. It felt like, man, if I don't get near to Jesus right now, I'm not going to make it to the end of today, much less my life. And I resonate with him. I'm like, man, there's something true about that. There's something about as this cloud lifts, I feel my heart need him less. I, I think in some way what Jesus is saying, hey, your reward is great in heaven. It's not just saying like, hey, someplace off in the sky, by and by. But he's also saying, hey, the kingdom of heaven is here now. And when you experience persecution, you actually experience my presence in a greater reality. That there is a downside to being all good in life. And there is an upside to being in the midst of some level of suffering is that you cling to Jesus. And man, if that is true, if that is your reality, that God both now and eternally is giving you more of him and more joy, more reward, more of what your soul actually longs for, what can you not endure? You're like, well, that sounds great. Uh, But how do I know that he's actually in the business of making ugly things produce joy and beauty? Because that's kind of like what he's based his entire campaign on in the cross. The ultimate display of I can take the most horrific act of persecution and suffering and bring the deepest amount of joy and beauty for all eternity. And that is, for Christians in the room, what you celebrate in the act of communion. When you come here, you come forward recognizing the persecution that was endured so that beauty could be brought out of it. 
And yes, on some level, that persecution was taken in your place. But Jesus says, hey, as you come to my kingdom, you will experience persecution, not to pay for your sins, but just because you're pushing out an old kingdom. And as you do it, you will produce the same joy in your life and the lives of others. And so as you come forward, come and take a piece of the bread. In a few moments, we'll have stations around the room, including a gluten-free station on my right and your left, where you can take bread, break it, because that's the body of Jesus, broken, persecuted for you. And you dip it in the cup that represents the blood of Jesus, shed for the persecution that he endured for you so that you might know that in even your small persecution or big persecution, he will redeem it. And so we're going to have communion around here. As we always say, if you're not a Christian, glad you're here. I hope I've walked through this in a way that didn't feel like we were just trying to create a Christian martyr syndrome. I hope I've presented this in a way that you might be able to consider, hey, is what he's saying about my righteousness not being in my own merit, but being in Jesus is what I'm actually longing for? Is Jesus being the King and Lord of the universe and my own soul what will bring me the most peace and joy in this world? I pray you consider that. If you believe it, then come forward because you are a Christian. But if you don't, then feel fully free to stay in your seat and to wrestle with that. As always, we'll have people to pray for you and for anyone, for good, bad, and indifferent. I don't know why you'd want to pray for indifferent, but it will be there to pray for you if you do. On the other side of the, uh, that pipe and drape at the connect table. Let me pray for us now. Father God, Lord, give us hearts that continue to see that you are what is most worth sacrificing for, giving everything for, whether that be suffering, persecution, or merely the laying down of our own kingdoms. Lord, you have come to show that as you push out kingdoms, you're pushing out the world's kingdom and you're pushing out every individual's kingdom. And man, that might go with pain, but it produces such joy. Lord, I resonate with the words of uh, a great martyr who I believe was just rephrasing you and he said, he's no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Lord, make that a truth about our hearts this morning and beyond this morning to endure between now and entering into your kingdom in its fullness. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.